Well, and I, and I think you can tell Michelle that, that we are not we are not pyromaniacs. We are pyromantics. Oh, that's nice. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All for Nature. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak, and I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve. Okay, listeners, it's November, and although we do still have plenty of gorgeous, warm, and sunny days in the mix, all the signs of the natural world tell us we are headed toward winter. For those of us at the Nature Reserve, that means prescribed burn season is upon us. If you heard episode three... I visited with Mike Saxton about our restoration team and the work they do with fire, weeds, and seeds in their efforts to restore and maintain richer biodiversity at the Nature Reserve. This month, our attention turns to a deeper dive into the first of those, fire. That's right. Like I said, burn season has begun at the Nature Reserve, and this month I visited with two members of our staff who know a lot about fire. In fact, between them, they have so much fascinating knowledge to share that we're expanding this subject across three episodes. Here's what that will look like. Today's episode will focus on an overview of fire on the landscape. For example, what is fire anyway, and how has fire been used or not used, by humans throughout history. In later episodes, we'll talk about what prescribed burning looks like at the nature reserve and hopefully, if the timing is right, even bring you some field recordings from a prescribed burn at the nature reserve. So keep your fingers crossed that the weather and our schedules align for that, because I think that will be a really fun episode. But first... Let's take some time to learn about the science and history of fire on the landscape, as well as how human intervention has changed the course of things through time. So, without further ado, I bring you our first episode, Making Friends with Fire, a history of fire on the landscape. We are fortunate to have not one, but two fire experts on hand here at the Nature Reserve, and so I've invited both of them on to talk to us today. If you listened to episode three, released in September, you'll remember Mike Saxton, our manager of ecological restoration and land stewardship. If you haven't given that episode a listen, you'll definitely want to go back and do that. And I'll let Mike reintroduce himself in a moment, but making his debut on our podcast is Calvin Maginell. Cal is our ecological resource scientist here at the Nature Reserve, and because this is his first time behind the mic for our podcast, I'll let him introduce himself first. Cal, please tell our listeners a little about your background and the work you do here at the Nature Reserve. Yeah, thank you. Hey, everyone. So I kind of serve as a liaison between researchers who want to use the Nature Reserve property for the research that they do. Um, so these are local institutions. We've had people as far away in the time I've been here um, as Canada. Um, but generally speaking, it's a St. Louis area and um, a few institutions from Illinois as well. So I also have a background in restoration ecology and botany. And with that background, then I can assist with both the restoration program here at the Nature Reserve and also serve as a a person who can be a local expert for um, botanical knowledge here. So I assist with researchers from the main campus, the 
Center for um, Conservation and Sustainable Development. And some of the research projects they have here on site involve local flora. So I help them identify those plants and collect those data. And, um, oh, I work relatively closely with the education programs by leading nature walks at the Nature Reserve and also help the Shaw Institute for Field Training, which is a group of high schoolers from the general area. Um, they have like a year-long program that occurs here at the Nature Reserve, and so I help with that as well. Awesome. And Mike, maybe you can recap what you told us before about your background and role here. Sure. So I've been with the Nature Reserve uh, for about eight years, and I think kind of the cleanest distillation of what it is that uh, my role in, in our broader ecological restoration program uh, is fireweeds and seeds, right? So that makes up the bulk of, uh, of my work and our, our team's work. So we're putting prescribed fire on the ground. We're controlling non-native kind of problematic plants. And then we're collecting native seed to help us bolster uh, our native flora across our 2,400 acres. Okay, great. Thank you. So for today's topic, Mike, you already brought up fire, and that's what I've brought you both here to talk about. And I think for our listeners, this has become a more relevant topic over the past several years, especially as we hear in the media about huge wildfires that are burning out west. And I'm thinking of California and the fires that have threatened communities there over the past decade or so. Uh, but also last summer, our area, along with much of the eastern half of the United States, experienced experienced noticeable air quality effects from Canada wildfires. So we're hearing about fire a lot. It's in the news a lot. And if what I'm experiencing with our school groups who come to visit us is any indication, I think people have a lot of questions about fire. So let's just start with the basics. What is fire? Who wants to handle that one? I mean, it's combustion, um, which requires fuel, oxygen, and heat. Um, so they call that the fire triangle. Um, if you don't have those three things occurring at the same time, um, you cannot have fire. From the, the standpoint of what we're talking about, which is generally speaking, um, fire at, at landscape scales is a lot different than what people think about when they think about like your campfire or a structure fire, like a house burning. Mm -hmm. Um, this is often, um, and especially historically, was just confined to the surface fuels. So when you say surface fuels, you're talking about plant matter, like on the surface of the ground, right? For clarification. Yes. Dead or living, depending on where you okay. are in the country. Okay. Um, but that, so that, that makes up one of those legs of the fire triangle. And then without oxygen and heat then those surface fuels would not uh, be able to ignite. Okay, makes sense. Mike, anything to add to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So let's talk about like big history, big time scale, history of fire on the earth. Um, I think most of us would assume that as long as the earth has existed, there's been fire on the surface, but that's not exactly true, right? Because if we could get in a time machine and travel all the way back to the very origins of our planet, and what I mean is before plant life, what would we see? Probably the only fire I can think of would be volcanoes. 
Sure. We yeah. This it's a very seismically active planet, right? Lots of uh, lots of underground fire, so to speak. Um, but we pointed out that the fire triangle requires oxygen. Without plants, without an abundance of plants growing on the surface of the planet, evolving onto the surface of the planet, there wasn't a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere at the time. So this idea of fire fire as a landscape scale phenomena would not have been occurring, uh, you know, that many millions of years ago. All right. So what about once humans came along? How are they using fire? So um, there are records and um, we know of places, uh, especially in caves where we, we find charcoal going, you know, 30, 40,000 years back. We know humans would have, as soon as they figured out how to use fire, would have immediately been using fire to preserve food and stay warm because those are the same things we want today. Um, So I can't see a scenario where that wouldn't have been strongly tied to um, the evolution of Homo sapiens from the beginning. I mean, potentially before there was even Homo sapiens. If if there was an an ability or an option to use fire, I would guess that as a tool that was used. Yeah, and some resources will say that Fire, as, as Cal mentioned, uh, charcoal and caves will date back to a million years, um, especially in, in, on the African continent. But, uh, you know, kind of a, a more, more contemporary anyways, uh, there's the, you know, I'm reading here, it says evidence of widespread control of fire by anatomically modern humans dates to about 125,000 years. So that says widespread control of fire uh, would have been still 125,000. So it's, it's as integral to our species and as comfortable to our species and and familiar to us as as anything else. Okay, great. And I think when I was when I was preparing for this episode, I was reading a little bit and I think kind of what I was reading sort of indicated that the idea may, of maybe maybe in the beginning, of course, it was used for things like warmth and cooking and uh, keeping nocturnal predators at bay, light, and then maybe over time it became uh, a way for people to gather together socially and culturally right so you know who doesn't love sitting around a campfire right um and and having sort of that f- gathering aspect of it so okay so let's get back in that time machine that we've been taking through big history and bring listeners forward to maybe 10,000 years or so ago um what was going on then and how are people using fire then maybe once they became more agrarian Post-glaciation, right? 18,000 years ago, the glaciers are receding at the same time. Concurrently, humans are moving in. And they're, about 10,000 years ago, they're starting doing things like agriculture. So, like, the present, you know, if, if humans, right, like, let's talk this answer through. Humans got here to North America, what, Clovis, the Clovis man, 14,000 years ago, something like that. Give or Although take. we recently, I mean, super recently, just found out that it was more like 20-something, yeah. 22,000 years. Challenged but yeah. all that data. Um, yeah. So. Right. 20,000 years. To, to North America, though. Yeah, we've had humans in North America for 20,000 years. You know, glaciation. The glaciers were retreated 18,000 years ago, give or take, right? And um, fire follows humans, right? So we would have had, you know, as the glaciers are retreating, as the, the, the forests are expanding, the grasslands are expanding, and the flora is responding to climatic changes and the receding of the glaciers. Humans are arriving. There's fire on the landscape. In terms of, like, the agrarian side of the question... 
Yeah, that's complex because, I mean, there's no reason to suspect that indigenous people did not use fire in an agrarian lifestyle mm-hmm. the same way that we do now, for example, to burn off the stubble of your crops. But I would assume that a larger part of of the use of fire, um, agrarian or otherwise, was was defensive. Oh, tell us more. Because if you didn't burn the cured fuels around where you lived, then you would be susceptible to any wildfire, regardless of whether it was human caused or, or natural. I mean, this is something we understand today too. Um, like we put in these firewise communities and we talk about putting a hundred feet of fuel free zone around our houses and stuff like that, that this is exactly what they knew they just did at landscape scale. Right. Okay. So if, if you wanted to protect your village from fire, you burned up the fuel around your village. It's not like they had leaf blowers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh, that okay. that any travel corridor probably burned annually. Interesting. It was just safer. Okay. It, it was simply safer. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I think another in terms of having, um, as Cal mentioned, defensible communities uh, in. 1871, there was a fire in Wisconsin called the Peshtigo Fire. And we don't really think of Wisconsin as being you know, flammable in the same way we think about California being flammable. But uh, you know, 1.2 million acres burned, uh, about 2,000 people died, and it happened all uh, I mean, extremely quickly. So when we, when, we, when we do fire here at the Nature Reserve and we're lighting off a prairie, um, we can feel, we can hear, we can see the force and the energy with which these these fuels burn and this is all controlled it's planned we're expecting it but imagine being on the landscape in a and think of a little house on the prairie mm. right mm-hmm. and you're out there on the on the grand prairie and all of a sudden out of nowhere is this 30 mile per hour moving wall of flame that is engulfing everything in uh, in its path so that's what happened in in 1871 in Wisconsin and it killed 2000 people wow Well, I'm glad you mentioned that date, Mike, because um, I want to fast forward again to modern times. And when I say modern, in this sense, I'm talking about the past couple hundred years or so. So let's focus on the land we now call the United States. What has fire activity looked like during this past couple of centuries? And how does that compare to the activity prior to that time? So um, I'm going to use the terms pre-contact and and then post-contact or colonization. Pre-contact would be um, indigenous peoples living in their ancestral lands pre-meeting with or interacting with uh, white colonizers. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that we talk about that is because even those early, those first interactions brought uh, European diseases, which Mm -hmm. the indigenous people that lived on this continent had not evolved with. So they were unfortunately quite susceptible to things like smallpox and all the other weird stuff that colonizers evolved with in their larger cities in Europe. Mm-hmm. So um, so pre-contact um, indigenous peoples in the U.S., we utilized fire for a whole bunch of different things. Um, so it kind of makes sense if you look at, um, if you know you have to burn defensively, and there's a certain time of year that the fuels around you um, become available or, or are cured enough, are dry enough. There's just like tip- uh, cyclical uh, weather patterns that you can kind of come to expect. Okay, this time of year, generally speaking, the fuels are uh, dry enough to carry fire. And as you, um, like as a society, experience that over generations, you also start to figure out 
um, other times that it helps your own food gathering or your own hunting tactics to burn as well. So if I can burn when the fuels are cured and I can also, for example, um, as Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about, I can remove the weevily acorns from the acorn crop and I can remove the fuels from that area so that when the good acorns fall, it's really easy to collect. Well, I'm going to do that, right? Not only am I protecting myself from fire, I'm protecting my food source long-term, and I'm creating a place where it's easy to harvest food this year. Not to mention what happens when you get a place where there's all kinds of acorns on the ground and there's nothing in the way. Well, the wildlife come there too. Mm -hmm. So I managed to bring other food sources besides the ones that were just the most obvious. Um, and, and those things played out across the country, right? Fire was just a, a typical, uh, as, as typical as the rains every year, right? Like it happened, especially where indigenous peoples lived, which was by the time of contact everywhere across the, the U.S. Sure. Okay. Mike? That's yeah, so when Europeans were moving westward uh, from, you know, moving out from the East Coast, they came upon the prairies of the Midwest, and their first initial thought was that the soil there was so poor that it couldn't sustain trees. They thought, wow, trees won't even grow here. And what we've, what these early uh, anecdotes, kind of these letters that they write back home, they say, once we take fire off the ground, woodlands spring up. Once there's no more fire, these prairies, these grassy areas become brushy, trees start establishing. So uh, really what was controlling the abundance of trees or the distribution of trees in the Midwest was really the presence of fire. So when um, when the, the first Europeans laid eyes on the Midwest and see these expansive, you know, millions and millions of acres of, of grasslands, it can, that tells us that fire was an extremely regular occurrence on the landscape in order to maintain those open prairie ecosystems. Well, and one of the ways that we kind of understand the history of fire uh, is looking at tree rings, right? We use dendrochronology, right? Using trees and using tree rings. And we can see through those tree records how frequent fire would have been um, on the landscape. Now, one of the challenges, as, as Cal already mentioned, is most of our fires were relatively mild surface fuel fires, right? They don't occur in a tree record unless the tree is injured. So it has to be a fairly intense fire to damage a tree that has thick bark in order for the fire to be recorded in the rings. Um, but what we're able to tell from some of the, uh, some of those data is when you think of uh, kind of the, the Rocky Mountains, the very, very southern Rockies, think of Arizona, New Mexico, that end of the Rocky Mountain range, fire would have been on the landscape every two, three, four, five years. So very active fire in those in those ecotypes. Once you went further north into kind of the, the Colorado area, roughly, give or take, fire would have been occurring 50 to 100 years uh, in the kind of the more alpine settings. And once you get into the, the northern Rockies, think kind of in, on the Canadian side of the border, fire was fairly infrequent. Fire every hundreds of years, two, three, four hundred years, much less fire adapted communities in that part of the world. In the high alpines, in the higher elevations, for right. sure. So it seems like once these white European colonizers entered the picture, fire on the landscape was altered significantly. And as these colonizers continued to intervene in this process when it comes to how fire burns, what it burns, and where it's allowed or not allowed to burn, I guess, I would guess that over time, those impacts have increased significantly. Um, so I would love for the two of you to speak to that and talk some then also about what's happened in the past 40 years or so to change that perspective. 
So here in, in Missouri, in this part of the world, uh, we're really at the, the junction of two big ecosystems, right? What we would call an ecotone. So the prairies of the Midwest, the grand grasslands of, of the central United States, uh, meet the force of the east, right? So uh, the, the oak hickory woodlands that dominate kind of the eastern part of the country, right? And that line where the prairie meets the woodlands, that line would have ebbed and flowed on long time scales, right? So not not five years of wet weather, 10 years of wet weather. We're talking about centuries going on millennia of 100 wet years, there'd be less fire. So trees would have established further out into the into the Grand Prairie. Then you might have 100 dry years, more drought, more fire, and that line of trees gets pushed back uh, further to the east. So where we're occurring now is, is kind of a what would have historically been a little more of a savanna, much many fewer trees, a lot more spacing between the trees. And that would have all been from uh, the you know, relatively high abundance of, of fire. So once fire was removed from the landscape, the ecosystems change abruptly and change uh, in, in, in significant ways in a relatively short amount of time. Anything to add, Cal? Basically, I think you're asking, so colonizers arrived as, as they gained and as they dissected the landscape more and more and more, they then gained more control over the even the option to remove fire from the landscape. I don't think my my understanding is that wasn't really an option until the 30s and 40s when we were building roads, like actual roads with automobiles. And um, I, I think I would agree that with a statement of someone were to just make it that fire suppression wasn't really much of an option before then. And it was something that people living here, regardless of whether they were indigenous or colonizer, had to deal with as well. Because my understanding is, in even in the Ozarks, you burned around your house because you had to. Same reason that indigenous peoples had to burn as, as defensively. So I think that um, it wasn't until the landscape became a lot more dissected and a lot more like Europe, you know, with stone fence rows and, and roads everywhere that you could even have the opportunity to suppress landscape scale fires plowed fields agricultural fields that aren't aren't uh, burnable yeah and i think there were two there were kind of two events or two two things to think about in terms of a diminished presence of fire on the landscape so one would be especially in in the in the midwest anyways uh the primary ignition source for fire was indigenous people yes there are lightning strike fires there de- there definitely are in this part of the world but Humans would have been the the primary ignition. Now, once the indigenous people were forced from the land and disappeared from the land, their frequent and abundant fire also went away, which had these impacts across all of the the habitat types. Um, So that's kind of the one way in which fire was greatly diminished on the landscape. The primary ignition source was lost, which was the indigenous people. The other way is is really kind of the institutionalization of fire suppression, the the creation of the U.S. Forest Service in kind of 1904, and this idea that we put out fires to protect a resource. Timber was seen as a resource, no doubt about it. It is. It's a resource today. Like, we need trees. We need sustainable forest practices. But there was a period, especially with the founding of the U.S. Forest Service, where it was active suppression by any means possible to put out fires. And that's kind of the, and what we are doing with today in our forests of the West, uh, especially, is a legacy of that kind of first, uh, you know, early 20th century intervention. This idea that we can control the landscape, we can control where fire is and when and how, and and we're dealing with that legacy yet today. 
I think that's really interesting that you brought that up because when, when I, again, when I was reading um, in preparation for this episode, I think I read something about that U.S. Forest Service policy. They had a 10 a.m. policy or something like that, where when a wildfire was reported, the idea was that it would be uh, suppressed or at least manageable by 10 a.m. the next day. So just I wanted to get that out there for our listeners to kind of have some perspective on just how powerful um, that policy has been over over time. So so now we're talking about fire and we're talking about the Forest Service and we talked briefly about wildfires, the kinds that we see, these catastrophic ones. Um, there, uh, Before we get into how fire is used here at Shaw Nature Reserve, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the differences between those huge catastrophic and out of control fires that we hear about the news and the way your teams use fire intentionally and carefully to manage the land here at the Nature Reserve. So what are some of those differences? Probably one of the worst things that happened to our forested uh, landscape, especially in in the, the Western United States, is Smokey the Bear, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Smokey the Bear, of course, is just synonymous with the idea that all fire is bad and fire is is not acceptable on the landscape. I mean, I think I think it used to be only you can prevent forest fires, right. and now it's they've changed messaging to only you can prevent wildfires, mm. which is a, a subtle but meaningful difference, right? Right. So. Uh, as we kind of said, with the founding of the U.S. Forest Service and this very, very intensive, active fire suppression, uh, there was a, a less, you know, less in the fire on the landscape. And what that led to is uh, a buildup of the number of trees and the density of trees in the forests of the West, especially. That now people have gotten the message that we've got overstocked trees, too many trees because of a lack of fire. So that now, when there is a fire, it's raging and catastrophic and explosive. And so in the Western part of the U.S., fire suppression has led to more catastrophic fire. Here in our part of the world, especially in terms of our woodlands, the suppression and the absence of fire has not made our woodlands more flammable. In many ways, they've made them less flammable. So what I mean is our oaks and our hickories promote fire, they like fire, their leaf litter burns really, really well. In the absence of fire, maples have really moved into a lot of our open oak hickory woodlands and maple leaf litter does not like to burn. Uh, The shadier the ground is, uh, the higher the humidity, the less wind, the wetter the fuels. Fire intensity is less when maples move into uh, an oak woodland, uh, especially in the absence of fire, things like honeysuckle, privet, buckthorn, some of these non-native shrubs, when they move in, same same thing happens, higher levels of humidity, less light reading the, reaching the understory. And the woodlands, instead of being more flammable from fire not being on the landscape, they've actually gotten less and less and less flammable over time. Interesting. Cal, anything to add? Uh, just another uh, good example of a species that's moved in in a lot of places that you can see right now is is eastern red cedar. Um, they stand out like a bright green thumb. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Uh, yeah, so cedar trees, um, and cedar is a misnomer. The the genus Cedrus is actually um, in Europe. So the, the we call them cedars, but they're technically junipers. Um, but the the eastern red cedar trees that grow here are not very fire tolerant. Um, They're one of the few species of trees in Missouri that if you remove all of the green um, needles on it, it will actually die so that even if you cut it, it won't re-sprout from the stump. Uh, Most of our other species, including even shortleaf pine, 
um, which is rare for a pine species to be able to resprout from the from the rootstock. Um, but th those all kind of speak to a more fire tolerant um, evolutionary past. But cedar trees are great at uh, colonizing um, disturbed areas. Um, so our all a lot of our old fields and overgrazed woodlands um, as we started pulling cattle and pigs and sheep out of our woodlands and also kept fire out of them. Um, so this, I'm talking like the 60s, 70s, 80s, then cedar trees were one of the first things to move in in the places that the maples were either also moving in or, or didn't move into. But as far as uh, kind of back to your point about um, fires out west, um, I have ancillary duties as a wildland firefighter and have been on the wildfires. I've, I've helped suppress wildfires out west. I, I went to southern Oregon this year, um, for example, and the, the fires there... Um, are, this was uh, near the like Klamath National Forest and the Rogue River Siskiyou. It's beautiful country. It's very rugged. Uh, it's close to the coast. And um, there have been, in, in the area where, where I was this summer, there was a fire called the Biscuit Fire in 2002. And then there have been four other fires in that general area over the last 20 or so years. And um, the fire that started this time was someone who was having a birthday party and they shot tannerite, which is that explosive thing. Um, and it exploded and started a fire and, um, the fire ended up 35,000 acres, but there was an interesting phenomenon on this fire. Almost a third of the fire line was deliberately left uncontrolled, which is not something you do if you want to put out a fire. But in this case, they were able to do that because it burned into the fire scars from the previous four or five other fires. So this gets right to our point, right? If you have repeated fire in a place on a landscape, it actually will remove the fuel. And then later, future fires like this one, the flat fire is what it was called, will, will when they hit those old fire scars, it'll go out on its own. Okay. We did not have to send firefighters into harm's way by going down in this big old valley because it ran into a fire scar. Okay, so a lot less risk to life Correct. that yeah. way because of, because of burning previously. That's all right. Now, those were previous wildfires that did require firefighters to go in there. But it's interesting that the, the phenomenon that indigenous people knew to save themselves from wildfires, which was you just have to put fire on the landscape, this does still work today, but it takes, it takes a while, right? It's not instant. It's not one fire fixes the problem. It's multiple fires mm -hmm. fix the problem. Okay. That's interesting. Thank you so much. Okay, listeners, that's it for the first of our three episodes about fire. Now, typically, we release a new podcast episode each month. But for this fire trilogy, we're going to reduce that wait time and release a new episode about every two weeks or so. Meanwhile, Here's what else is happening at the Nature Reserve, and if you're listening from the future, these dates are all in 2023. First, we have a few public programs coming up that do have some space. I'm seeing some winter walks and a winter botanical watercolor workshop that are not yet full. Both of these programs have multiple dates throughout the winter season, so be sure and follow the registration link in our show notes to register for those. Also, our Whitmire Wonderlights event is taking place December 7th, 8th, and 9th. This is an amazing event, but it's almost sold out. So if you're planning to attend, 
please be sure to jump online and get those tickets right away. Folks, I've had so much fun bringing you this episode today. I'll be back with more from Mike and Cal in just a couple of weeks or so. In our next episode, we'll focus in on how fire has been used historically at the nature reserve and even talk about what a present-day prescribed burn looks like for the crews who work those fire lines during a burn. So please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode and share it with everyone you know. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then... We'll see you on the trail.